John chapter 7. John chapter 7. If you ever want to get yourself in a little bit of a tizzy, panic, I'm sure you want to do that every once in a while, right? As if the normal news cycle doesn't do that already. Well, um, I was, uh, this morning, the, uh, we're going to talk about uh, a scripture where Jesus talks about that he's the living water. And uh, I was thinking about water, I was thinking about drinking, uh, and I began to just, you know, what we all do when we don't know something, we Google something and start looking, and it was disturbing and fascinating of the worldwide global crisis that has to do with clean drinking water, and that globally, we know obviously on certain places around the planet, um, and one of the opportunities that... Uh, Samaritan's Purse and other missionary missions have done is in providing wells and clean drinking water and you provide that in some communities you immediately have uh, their attention I mean that's an immediate thing because drinking water uh, you know we take it for granted I have clean drinking water here uh, we've heard on the news you know and uh, up in East Palestine, uh, Palestine, Ohio, with the train derailment, how that chemical spill, how that's affected the water system. Some of you, many of you are Michiganers, and you know the problems that Flint, Michigan has had through the years uh, in their water, through the uh, aged pipe systems that have contaminated the water system. And, uh, you know, I was reading again about the global water issue that 4 billion people Almost two-thirds of the world's population experience severe water scarcity for at least one month each year. Over two billion people live in countries where the water supply is inadequate. Half of the world's population, half, could be facing uh, water scarcity shortages as early as 2025. Some 700 million people could be displaced by intense water scarcity by 2030. And by the year 2040, roughly one in four children worldwide will be living in areas of extremely high water stress. And the United States is not immune from that as well, that it's also a crisis uh, that we don't hear a lot about, but it's, but it's real. Now, I say all that to say, and thinking about Jesus as the living water and, and not to take anything away or minimize the seriousness of, of that uh, problem. But something that affects more people isn't so much a natural uh, water thirst, a scarcity of water, but a spiritual thirst that people have. Regardless of uh, age, uh, race, creed, nation or whatever, the scarcity of the spiritual life, spiritual water, if you will, as we'll see in John chapter 7 that is pictured in John 7, is a reality. Now you remember the, uh, as we look at John chapter 7, I didn't uh, I try to mention this almost every week, but in John 20 verse 31, John at the end of his book reminds us of why he's written the book of John. He said these things are written... The reason I wrote all these things about Christ, I had a purpose, so that you may believe, trust, know that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, 
And that by believing, by trusting, you may have life in His name. And so again, John chapter 7, the events are purposed there by John the author. The Holy Spirit's the ultimate author, but John is the human instrument. That he is purposed there and in an encounter that is built around uh, the scripture that is uh, in verse... uh, uh, well, let me see. I'm skipping ahead here, which I always get in trouble if I do that. But Jesus talks about being the living water. We'll get to it. And so, life in his name. Just as there's life and that we need water, we need, I think somebody said, the average person requires about two liters a day. Now, some of you don't necessarily, some of you don't like water, don't drink enough. And I don't drink enough. And I'm always having to remind myself, I need to drink some water. And it, it's just... The vitality that we need. Well, the spiritual vitality that Christ provides is something that we're going to see here in John chapter 7 in quenching the spiritual thirst. Now, when we come to John chapter 7, just by way of a little introduction, we come into this period where John chapter 7 and 10 begin to focus on a certain intensity in Jesus' ministry. Up to this point, we've seen some Uh, various responses in the ministry of Jesus, but as we come to chapter 7, we see somewhat of a change that begins to take place, and essentially those who love Christ and those who are following Christ, as the book of John continues, they're going to love him more, they're going to know him more, but at the same time, those who are indifferent and maybe hostile, we'll see that 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 hatred and that animosity against Christ is going to grow more intense. So this is a pivotal chapter in the book of John. And we see the division that begins to take place. In John chapter 7, in fact the title this morning is, Are You Thirsty? Now I don't want to subliminally start affecting people and see a mass rush to the water fountain when I start talking about drinking and water. So just bear with me. But I want you to look in John chapter 7, verse 1 and 2 with me as we kind of introduce this a little bit this morning. The Bible says, After this, Jesus went about in Galilee, and he would not go into Judea because the Jews... Now, anytime you see in the book of John the phrase, the Jews, that's not speaking about every Jewish person because everybody around Jesus at this point is Jewish. That term, the Jews, is really a term John uses that speaks to the religious leaders, the Pharisees mainly. Uh, And so when you see that, the religious leaders were seeking to kill Jesus. So you see immediately in chapter 7, verse 1, you see a change here. Now they are looking to kill him. And verse 2 tells us the context here. Now the Jews, this was the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles. Now... Just bear with me just briefly because to understand the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles is important to understand uh, this chapter in chapter 7. It's important for us to uh, get a little handle on this because it will be more meaningful as we walk through the chapter a little bit. And we're going to kind of just scan the whole chapter uh, on the theme of Are You Thirsty? And Jesus is the Living Water. Now... There were three great feasts that Jews, uh, that male Jews were required to go to Jerusalem in the temple to celebrate. There was other 
smaller feasts, but the three main Jewish feasts, as you probably know, was the Feast of Unleaded Bread or Passover. That was roughly in our April, March uh, parallel to what we you know, celebrate the resurrection, the Passover feast. Fifty days later was the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Pentecost. Penta meaning uh, five, the Pentecost, 50 days. And it was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And that was a big feast. And then later in the fall, around our uh, September, October uh, uh, time period, there was the celebration of the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. And so that gives you a little time frame. And to give you a little idea, if you're not familiar with it, was with some of the unique things that went on at the Feast of Booths uh, was that uh, it was prescribed in Leviticus 23. And the festival was a week-long feast that began on the 15th day of the Hebrew month, Tishrei, which again is roughly late September, mid-October on our calendar. The feast begins with a collection of palm and willow branches to be used as a symbol of rejoicing before the Lord. And Leviticus 23 lays out uh, the uh, program there that God put in the law that Israel would follow. And so in this Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Booths, all of Israel would camp out in tents for an entire week. Now some of you would say, oh, that sounds fun. And then some of us would say, oh, that sounds horrible, all right? So they would camp out in tents for an entire week, and they would offer uh, t- all types of sacrifices and burnt offerings to the Lord, And Deuteronomy uh, extends the festival, not only, this is interesting, in Deuteronomy it extends where the festival is required of Israel, but it also extends it uh, to, not just to the priests, but the orphans, the widows, even immigrants, both male and female children, everybody that really was within the borders of Israel uh, was encouraged and a part of this celebration, a huge in-gathering that was celebrated at the Feast of Booths. And so families, this was a really big deal for them to celebrate. It was a very high point in their, their time and their uh, celebration. And so um, this is where Jesus, uh, we see in John chapter 7, this is the context for the events that unfold in chapter 7. Now the feast had to oversimplify, had two essential purposes. One was to look back at God's faithfulness. We sang, what? Great is thy faithfulness. Uh, it was to look back at God's faithfulness in His, over, uh, in his uh, uh, securing them and navigating them through the wilderness. God's faithfulness in leading them and providing for them the manna. What it also did He provide in the wilderness? He provided them... Water. Hold on to that because that will come into play later. So it was a time of celebrating what God had done. But it was also a time to look forward, to look ahead in anticipation of what God was going to do. And it was going to come with the promised Messiah. Now we've talked about how the idea of Messiah, they were a little bit, uh, many of the Jews in this uh, generation were a little bit confused on their concept of Messiah, but they still celebrated in this feast the anticipation that God had promised one 
uh, that would come. Remember, like Moses, God would bring forth one who would be not just a prophet, would be, would be the prophet. So this, imagine, families, uh, everybody, everybody was gathering in Jerusalem. And I just want to ask you the question, is this a good time for Jesus to show up and uh, reveal to some degree or, or at least minister to this massive group of people that could swell into the millions of people that were gathered in Jerusalem? Yeah, you bet. This is, a, this is a great time. This is an ideal time that he would show up and to speak about how he, he was the one that God had promised to be the one that would quench the thirst that all of us yearn for, that he was the living water. It was a great time for him to show up and minister. And you know what? Today may be the great, a great time that you showed up here because you may be here this morning and you may have a spiritual thirst in your life and you've tried everything to kind of satisfy, but yet you still have this, this longing, this, this insatiable thirst spiritually in your inner person, your inner man, that, that you desire something in your life that would bring the, the satisfaction and meaning that you have yearned for. And so today, I think, is a good day for you to be here. I started to say in verse 37 was the verse that really everything in chapter 7 wraps around. And the verse 37 if you have your Bibles, hopefully you brought your Bibles or your tablet or however you have them, is that's when Jesus stood up and said, uh, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Everything in chapter 7 kind of hinges on that culmination, and we're going to get to that in a little bit. But first, as we talk about this insatiable thirst that humans have, uh, that we are born with, this, this longing, uh, you know, there's various ways that we seek to quench that thirst. And I think one of the things that we see in chapter 7, in just kind of giving an overview, I want to note four things about uh, false strategies, empty strategies, if you will, that we oftentimes will try to quench that spiritual thirst in our life. Notice with me, first of all, is human strategies can't satisfy our thirst. Human strategies can't satisfy our thirst. This is looking to bring the spiritual satisfaction and looking to something practical, something that just kind of seems to make sense for us to, to try to satisfy that spiritual longing in our life. And it's interesting when you come to verse 3 of John 7, verse 3, we see it says, so his brother said to him, now some of you may not realize this, but after Jesus was born, the Bible teaches that Jesus uh, was born to the Virgin Mary. It was a miraculous birth, but she was married to Joseph, and that Joseph and Mary had together other children after Jesus' birth. And Jesus had brothers and sisters, the Bible tells us about. So we see in this context, the whole family is around and they're getting ready in anticipation about the Feast of Tabernacles. I mean, that's the, that's the big event going on. So his brothers give him some very practical advice. His brothers said to him, to Jesus, their brother, their half-brother, if you will. They said, leave here and go to Judea. 
that your disciples, your followers, may also see the works you are doing. They said, for no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. And then John, the author, gives this little comment, for not even his brothers believed in him. Now, last week we talked about Judas a little bit, and it just reminds us that you can be around... I mean, think about it, his family growing up. How many times do you think that they heard the story that we call the Christmas story of the angel visiting mom? How many times do you think they heard that? I just kind of wonder, they're like, oh, mom, do we have to hear that story again? I mean, you know, I mean, we hear it every, yes, we know, we can tell the story. I mean, they grew up, obviously, they were familiar, but yet it says what? They didn't believe. You can be in church here today. You can be a member of Grace Church. You can be a member of whatever church. You can have grown up around Christian things and been exposed, and you may know the Bible more than anybody, but that doesn't guarantee you that you know the spiritual water of Jesus. So they gave him some what? Some very familiar advice. They were familiar with Jesus. Familiarity. And it was very practical. What were they saying? Kind of like, you know, a good marketing strategy. Jesus, look, if you want to really get this thing off the ground, right? Here's what you need to do. You need to expose yourself to a bigger crowd. You need to just hang out with your friends here in Galilee. You need to get out and, I mean, we need to get some posters. We need to get some billboards. We need to get some spot ads. And we need to get some publicity going. Look, if you want to make yourself known... Here's the way that you do it. That's real practical advice. In other words, they were tempting Jesus to do something spectacular for the crowd. Now, he's already fed the multitude. We know that, right? We've already seen that. And what did they want to do? They wanted to come and take him by force and make him king. They said, Jesus, if you want to be known, man, this is a grand opportunity you need to seize the moment. Carpe diem. You need to seize the day here. Jesus already faced that one temptation, if you remember, to do something spectacular to shortcut the processes of God. Do you remember that? And Luke 4 and Matthew 4 tell about the temptation that Satan himself put upon Jesus the time Jesus was in the wilderness fasting and praying for 40 days and 40 nights. And one of that temptations of doing something spectacular was what? It was a second temptation. Was, was Jesus, why don't you go to the pinnacle of the temple and leap off the pinnacle of the temple? And when people see you captured in the arms of angels floating down, they'll know who you are. No cross, no suffering. No hanging out with these 12 bums and one of them's going to turn on you. I mean, I don't know what he said. But it was real practical, right? Look at what Jesus... Jesus understood that that's human strategy. Look at verse 6. And Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come. He said, but your time is always here. I'm on a different clock, boys. The world cannot hate you, 
but it hates me. Why? Because I testify. I tell them about it that its works are evil. You go on up to the feast. I'm not going to go up to this feast for my time has not yet fully come. Now, there's a little bit of translation issue. It really is saying, I'm not going up yet because we know he did. And that's really what he's saying. I'm not going up yet. You go on and I'll go up when I feel the time is right. You know, oftentimes we, the problem is it's so much knowing the will of God for many of us. It's knowing the timing of the will of God, doesn't it? Jesus, who's in full throttle control. Remember he said later in John, he said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down freely. He's in control of all things. And yet you see here a a beautiful symmetry between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. He knew that they were after to kill him, but he also knew on the human side that it was that he had to have wisdom in the timing of presenting himself and putting himself in a situation where there was going to be open hostility, all right? But what did he what is he saying here? And this goes back to these these practical strategies that sometimes we try to figure things out and do common sense. I don't want common sense. I want God sense in my life, right? And sometimes common sense, practical stuff of how to quench that spiritual longing and thirst in my life, that has led us nowhere. Some of you this morning are at dead ends because you've exhausted this situation and that situation. You've exhausted the the situation where, where you've tried this and you've tried that and you got the t-shirt. Jesus said, it's not the right time. Knowing and having discernment in your life of God's timing is important. And Jesus said, look, I know what's going to happen because I'm not, I'm not catering to popular sentiment. Jesus says, I'm not going after... Uh, politically correct. He said, they hate me. Why? Because I tell them the truth. Now, I tell you, don't be surprised. As our time moves forward, preceding the coming of Christ, the Bible is very clear that the times and season, yes, I believe there's pockets of God's outpouring of revival, but as a whole, things will become worse and worse. And the church, sadly, generally speaking, there won't, I'm not saying there won't be pockets, but, but the church, more and more, will become apostate, will become departing from the truth. Why? Because one of the things that we've seen in our American culture is that, guess what? You start, you start developing a church where you're telling everybody that God's will is to have every day as a Friday, and there's no suffering, there's no hardship, and God, Jesus died on the cross to give you a, a wealthy, prosperous life. You know what? They love that. But you get to talk about sin. You talk about judgment. You talk about that you cannot make your own way to God. That it's only through the death, burial, and resurrection and the work of God through Christ. The only thing you bring to your salvation is your sin. You begin to talk about the truth of the Word of God, and guess what? 
the world, the culture, you begin to talk about that God has moral standards. There are things that have not changed in the Word of God. Male is male, female is female. There's no debate. Believe the science. That's science, right? In other words, God has a revealed will, but what will happen? I think about Elijah when he came and Ahab saw Elijah coming. And what did Ahab say to Elijah as Elijah the prophet was going to confront the wickedness of Israel under Ahab and his wife Jezebel? She was the real Jezebel. He looked at Elijah coming and he said, O troubler of Israel. You see, don't be shocked that you live long enough. In fact, you see pockets of it now. That the people who stand for Christ, people who stand for truth, stand on the inerrant, authoritative word of God that the culture will say, troublers. The problem in America is those Christians. It's that church. Troublers. You see, Jesus did not come to win the crowd. He came to give of his life. And the reason he said in verse 7, the New Living Translation says, The world, who is brothers, the world can't hate you, but it does hate me because I accuse it of doing evil. Later on, we'll, in, another, in the Gospels, it talks about John the Baptist. You remember John the Baptist was beheaded? Why? Because he confronted the king over his immoral lifestyle. And he lost his head. Guess what? You may confront people because of their sin and wickedness. I'm not saying you don't do it in love and grace and compassion. I'm not talking about that. But you speak the truth. Guess what? You're not going to be propped up and win the most popular contests in your job or your workplace or your school. Why? You're going to be seen as a freak. As an outdated relic. And somebody that's gone from somebody we just have to tolerate to somebody that's actually hurting our culture. So again, practicality and doing what seems to make sense. You know, don't get too carried away with this religion thing. You may have had some parents say that. You know, I'm glad you're, you know, you're not out sleeping around and doing drugs and then you're getting involved in church. That's, a, you know, we're proud of you, son. But don't get too carried away. And be a Jesus freak. Don't get too enamored with that you're going to start talking about and using the phrase the Bible says. I mean, come on, kid. You know, I'm older than you. I know the deal. You know, so I'm glad it's keeping you out of trouble. But don't get too carried away with this religion thing. You know, and sadly, sadly, this is a little bit off, but that's okay. You know I'm off every once in a while. You know, so many times, young people who give, commit their life to Christ, and God puts a call on their life, and they begin talking about, maybe, maybe I want to do what Pete and Jody are doing. Maybe I want to give my life to something bigger than myself, and I want to serve. And they say, oh, you know, that's a noble thing, but you need to always have something to fall back on, son. So why don't you go and pursue your career Kind of put your calling on hold, and you can kind of do that, you know, later as you get your job and establish and married and build up your career and build up your 401k and do all that kind of stuff because you don't want to get too carried away. And you know what? There are people, maybe even some of you, 
that you believe God had impressed on your life at one time. But somebody gave you what? Some practical ways. Some practical human strategies to pursue the yearning and thirst to love God and serve God in your life. Practical human strategies can never do it. Notice secondly, speculation. Speculation. Speculation can't satisfy our thirst. And this is what I call the philosophical solution. We see that in verse 11 through 13. It says again, the Jews were looking for him, him being Jesus, at the feast and saying, where is he? I mean, they just kind of figured he'd be there. And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, well, you know, he's a good man. And others said, no, he's leading the people astray. Verse 13, yet for fear of the Jews, again, that's the religious leaders, no one spoke openly of him. No one spoke openly of him. Why? Because there was a fear There was a fear at what would be said. There were speculations. And so they were speculating. And they were philosophizing. And they were trying to rationalize. You know, look. There is no neutrality to a person regarding Jesus Christ. Remember what C.S. Lewis famously said? He said "Either there's going to be... You have to come to one or three conclusions. Either he's a liar. Just a nut like a David Koresh, a Jim Jones, just a nut. Everybody's looking for a nut to follow. Or maybe he is a lunatic. I mean, he's not just a liar, but he's a crazy liar. Or maybe he's Lord. Those are are three, there's no neutrality. Jesus even said, if you're not for me, you've already voted You've already made your vote. You're not for me. You're what? You're against me. And so they're speculating. They're speculating. Human strategy means I'm going to try to help God out. Give him some practical advice. Here's how you do this, Jesus. Human philosophy is, well, you know, when I figure things out, that's when I know I can really have that spiritual longing quenched in my life. You know, when I kind of figure out why God is doing what He's doing or why God did what He did, if I could just figure this out, if I can just figure out the purpose and reasons why God has done this in my life or these situations or some of these sufferings or tragedies, if I can just kind of figure it out, if I can just kind of rationalize and get to the point where I get the the right information, then I know I'll really kind of come to that place. And guess what? There's many things that God's done in our life Here's a newsflash. You're never going to figure it out. You're never going to figure it out. You're never going to know the reasons. But here's what you can know. A lot of times people ask pastors questions about, what about this? What about that? And I used to be stupid enough to try to answer those questions. But I've learned that the best answer is to say, I don't know. But I do know that God is good. That God is loving. That God is holy. 
that God is righteous. In Genesis 18.25, Abraham said, Shall not the judge of all the earth always do right? I tell you, when you can fall back on the purposes and the sovereignty of God and say, Shall not the judge of all the earth always do right? Because that's what? Whatever he does is right. He never does anything that is contradictory to his holiness, his character. So if you come to a place where you say, I'm just, I'm just wrestling with these reasons and think if I could just get the right church to give me the right reasons that will satisfy that quest of who he is and why, then I can really enter in the purposes of God. Let me tell you something. Keep looking because humanly speaking, that's not going to happen. If I'm dependent on me trying to figure this out, what are they doing? They're trying to, well, I think he, I think he might be the one. I don't know. He might, you know, they're, they're just trying to rationalize. Verse 14, about the middle of the feast. See, Jesus was going to the feast, and it was about the middle of the feast, midway. Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. And verse 15, the Jews, the Jewish leaders, therefore, many of them marveled, the teachers, they marveled. How is it that this man has learning when he never studied? He didn't go to their schools. He hadn't read their books. He didn't go to the university like them. And they're speculating. How does he know all this? And he tells them in verse 16, Jesus answered them and said, My teaching is not mine, but is his who sent me. Oh, they went nuts over that. What is he saying? This isn't my own stuff. You see, the Pharisees, the reason Jesus was noted as one teaching with authority is because the rabbis taught quoting other rabbis as their source of authority. Well, Rabbi Hokum says this, Rabbi Levi says, you know, and this is, you know, like, can't you just tell us what it means? And then Jesus gets up and says, truly, truly, I say unto you. Who was his authority? Himself. He was God. They just quote, they just outsourced, they didn't have to, they, didn't, they couldn't teach with authority. Jesus could teach with authority. And so when he said, my teaching is not mine, what is he doing? He's telling them, stop speculating. This is who I am. And then he says, not after verse 16, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Verse 17, look at this. And this is some of you need to hear this. If anyone's will, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. You see, your attitude in responding to truth, Jesus says, if you want to know the truth, Respond to God. Respond to God's truth. You respond in faith and trust and belief. And God will bring the assurance that Jesus is who he says he is because he does not speak on his own authority. Notice thirdly, another false way to satisfy human thirst, spiritual thirst, is agreement. Agreement won't satisfy our thirst. This is 
the popular solution. Verse 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this man the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly. And they, meaning the religious junta, say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? They say, well, maybe they really, maybe they know him and they're just secretly not telling us. But notice the cynicism, verse 27. But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. There was a spiritual rumor that was popular that when Messiah would come, he would just kind of come in this supernatural way without any, almost just kind of an appearance, without any uh, knowing where he came from, humanly speaking. And that was certainly a wrong understanding. If they had understood any of the biblical prophecies, they would have known. And that's the reason Matthew and Luke spend so much time in the establishing the familial ancestry record of Jesus' lineage to the throne of David. But they said, we know where he comes from, and meaning if we know, then he can't be the real Messiah. In verse 28, Jesus proclaimed to them, as he taught in the temple, he said this, he said, you know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. The reason you do not recognize who I am is because you don't know my Father. You don't know God. The reason some religious people, when I talk about religious, I mean, the reason they don't recognize because they don't know God. They have all the trappings and stuff, but they don't know God. You're, you're, you're basing and saying, well, what's, what's the opinion? What do you say? What do they say? What do the religious authorities say? Look, Jesus said essentially back in that verse about if you believe, if you desire to do the will of God, if you want to know who I am and know where I come from, guess what? Don't ask this person or that person. Don't Google it. What is God's opinion about who Jesus is? What does the Word of God have to say about who He is? What is God's opinion? What does God say? God's truth and God's Word is like that compass. God's truth is not just cyclical based upon the culture and whatever changes. It's something you depend on. When you use that compass, you can't make your own north. It tells you which direction is north. It's a compass. It's a guidance. Your spiritual thirst will never be quenched if you're trying to build your life on other people's opinions. Some of you are people pleasers by nature. You always want to make everybody happy. Now, I'm not saying it's a virtue to make everybody irritated at you. And I know people like that. They feel like that's their spiritual gift, to make everybody irritated. But you're fearful of embracing God's purpose for your life because you're more consumed to what other people think what your reputation will be than what God says. And you can never satisfy your spiritual thirst. And the fourth one of a false way to satisfy our spiritual thirst is the religious solution. Number four, control. 
control. We like being in control. I won't ask for your hands, but you like being in control. But we like, and one of the ways that we want to try to control how we can be satisfied spiritually is oftentimes religion gives us a false sense of spiritual life. And when I say religion, I'm not talking about, I'm not picking on the Baptists or the Methodists, I'm not talking about religious groups. I'm not talking about that. I'm using religious in this sense as man's attempt to reach God or to please God. Man's attempt to, to find the purposes that God has said, you can't, but I can. You see, the Pharisees were masters at this. In verse, 30, uh, verse 32, we see how these masters of religion sought to control themselves and the crowd in saying, we are the source of spiritual life. Look at verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. And the chief priests and the Pharisees, these are the big, the big wigs, the spiritual elites, sent officers to arrest him. Verse 33, then Jesus said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. You see, they wanted to arrest Jesus because they couldn't control him. Religion wants to control your behavior, control your thinking. Some of you struggle with grace, the concept of grace, because you've fed and drank so much at a religious works-oriented of what you do and what you don't do. It's hard for you to understand the grace of God and the finished work of Christ. They tried physical force. The New Living Translation, verse 45 through 47, reads it a little clearer. I like the New Living Translation. It says, when the temple guards, they're the ones that the Pharisees tried to go and fetch Jesus and arrest him. When the temple guards returned without having arrested Jesus, the leading priests and Pharisees demanded, why didn't you bring him in? It's what we pay you guys to do. I don't know if they said that. What did they say? Verse 46. I love this. Just pure innocent. They were going out to arrest him, and they were like, uh, we've never heard anybody talk like this before. They weren't just saying he was a good orator and he had a good, clever, you know, he told some jokes and he had the good... You no, know, they were just saying there was something that impacted their very being. We've never heard someone speak of God like this man before. In verse 47, the Pharisees said, Have you been led astray too? It says they mocked them. Are you a Jesus freak too? You've gone to his side? So when people don't know really how to engage with truth, you know what they do is they use ridicule, intellectual ridicule. And you know people, some of you know that, people in your friends and family, they couldn't really have a, a discussion about spiritual things. And so when they're kind of at a loss, what did they do? They start ridiculing mocking you because of the truth. And if you're a people pleaser, you're kind of like, oh, you're right, I, I got a little carried away there. And you kind of lean back in because you, you love that being accepted by other people. 
Verse 48, notice how they, they said, look, if you want to know truth, we'll tell you the truth. They said, verse 48, is there, is there a single one of us rulers, verse 48, is there a single one of us rulers or Pharisees who believes in him? Meaning, we haven't bought into any of this. They said, this foolish crowd follows him. But they're ignorant of the law and God's curses on them. What are they doing? They're ridiculing. Look, we're the ones. You want to know what's true? You look to us. You want to know what the Word of God says? You look to us. Do you, are any of us fallen for him? No. But it's those dumb people who can't read their Bibles because they don't have a bunch of letters after their name, they're the ones that are foolishly following after. But there was one leader that wasn't, too, wasn't quite sold out yet. Verse 50 says Nicodemus. You remember, remember old Nick? Nick at night, he came in John 3, right? Nick at night, came to Jesus at night. He acknowledged you know, we know you must be a man sent from God because he said what? No one could do the miracles you do. I mean, he, and we see him. In fact, later on, when Jesus, after he was crucified, it was Joseph of Arimathea and Nick Odemus who was allowed to take the body of Jesus and prepare him for burial. I believe Nicodemus was a believer. Maybe not at this point, but I believe later he became a believer. Nicodemus... Part of these Pharisees, Nicodemus had all the degrees, he had all the status, but Nicodemus, that John says, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, who's the them? The Pharisees. Notice what he says. Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? He's saying, look, you, it's almost like, all right, guys, let me, let me get this straight. You want to arrest him for violating the law, but your method violates the law. You see, religion will make you not only irrational, but it'll make you out of control when you start doing things that don't even make any sense. Because why? Because Jesus will always disrupt what you seek to control. When you, get it, when you get God in your nice little box and you tie the ribbon and you say, okay, I finally got this God thing figured out. Guess what? He loves to come in there and turn your little box upside down and disrupt your life. And then that will determine what kind of God you have. The ridicule. They said, you must be from Galilee, verse 52. You must be from Galilee too. Kind of a term of derision. Like some people would say to me, because I live, oh, you're from Kathleen. Proud of it. <laughs> They're saying, oh, you're from Galilee. And notice what they say. They give some false doctrine, some false teaching, because they say, Nicodemus, if you really knew your Bible, you would see that there's no prophet that can arise 
from Galilee. Guess what? They're wrong. They're wrong. On two levels, they're wrong. First of all, the Bible says that Elijah, Hosea, both came out of Galilee. Also, the prophet Amos came out of Galilee. So they're wrong on that. And besides, Jesus did not come out of Galilee. He was born in Bethlehem. You see, religion will always turn and mess with the truth in order to get its gain. And so, if you're looking to control this spiritual yearning, yearning and thirst, and you find the emptiness of religious activity, Jesus, Jesus calls you to come to Him. You see, the bottom line is this. Who or what can satisfy the deepest inner spiritual thirst? That should be a question on the screen. I bet you know the answer. Only Jesus Christ. Only Jesus Christ. Now, kind of made a little emphasis on the Feast of Tabernacles that was going on. And I believe that knowing what that's about is the real key. You see, one of the things that happened on the Feast of Tabernacles, that the priests every day went and got water in the pool of Siloam. Now in chapter 9, we're going to see that's the pool when Jesus healed the blind man, he told to go wash in the pool of Siloam. So it was obviously a body of water. Water was very precious. That's the reason wine was so popular. Wine was very diluted by our standards, but water and water purification was, was not always a, an easy thing. And so the priests went to the pool of Siloam on the, during the Feast of Tabernacles every day, and they brought it back and poured water at the altar. And on the very last day of the feast, the priests went to the pool and brought back in this large kind of uh, container uh, water on the very last day. It was the last time they would do this. And remember, this is a huge celebration. This is on the last day. There's a culmination of, ex of celebration and excitement. And the priests would march around the altar at the conclusion on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, Feast of Booths, they would march around the altar seven times, and each time they marched, they shouted out the verse from Psalm 118, verse 25, O Lord, save us. O Lord, grant us success. O Lord, save us. O Lord, grant us success. As the priests marched around and did this on the last great day of the Feast of Booths. And the people, that was again, that was one of the, the culmination. And part of, again, remember I said the two purposes of the Feast of Booth, Booths was not just looking in anticipation at the Messiah, but it was also looking back at God's faithfulness. So one of the things that was central of God's faithfulness and that was so pivotal in the life of Israel was God's deliverance. Was, that was the Passover feast, but everything hinged around that massive, miraculous deliverance of God's people. And they remembered in the wilderness God's faithfulness in bringing water wandering in the desert. No, miraculously to them while they were wandering in the desert. No food, and they 
certainly had no water. And God, to strike the rock. And it wasn't just tepid. It was, it was clean, sweet drinking water. And so they remembered the rock that Moses had struck. And the people that were dying of thirst. And that water that poured out, gushed out. And their water and their thirst, rather, was quenched. And so get these priests. They're marching around seven times. And they have this huge golden pitcher. And, and kind of in this last big uh, dramatic event, they would take that pitcher of water and pour it in this funnel that would trickle down all, and go all over the altar of sacrifice. Now, I don't know. It doesn't say. But it's okay, just sometimes you just kind of imagine the moment that as that water was being poured out over the altar, that it was at that moment that Jesus in that loud, anointed voice said, If anyone thirsts, verse 37, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Now, that takes a bit of audacity that he would say, come to me. Why didn't he say, come to my teachings? Come to my views of God. Come to my church. But he says, come to me. Where does he get such audacity? Well, remember the principle of interpretation is the New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed. And the Old Testament is by the New revealed. Jesus, in Luke 24, after the resurrection, what did He do to those disciples? He taught them all those things concerning Himself that were written in the Law and the Prophets. What are we learning in Genesis? What's the key to knowing Genesis? Is the book of Genesis the key to understanding Genesis? Is Christ. Christ is the key of the Old Testament. And Paul, 1 Corinthians 10, gives us this understanding that when Jesus proclaimed that if you want to have your spiritual thirst quenched, come to me, Paul would help us in 1 Corinthians 10 by telling us exactly what's going on here. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 4. Paul said, talking about those ancestors in the wilderness, he said, I don't want you to forget, dear brothers and sisters, about our ancestors in the wilderness long ago. All of them were guided by a cloud that moved ahead of them. If you know your Old Testament, you understand what he's saying. And all of them walked through the sea, coming from Egypt on dry ground. And in the cloud and in the sea, all of them were immersed or baptized as followers of Moses. And he says in verse 3, all of them, all of those ancestors, all of them ate the same spiritual food. And all of them did what? They drank the same spiritual water. Now notice what he does. He puts the dots together. For they drank from the spiritual rock that traveled with them. And that rock was Christ. You see, when Jesus said... If any of you are thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He was the true rock. He was the true living water. 
You're chasing after anything and everything to seek satisfaction for that spiritual thirst in your life. And some of you may be like that today. And Jesus says the same thing to you. Come and drink from me.